Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. We are glad you're here for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool is ready for you. We're brought to you today by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today with the VPN that you can trust to secure your privacy. Our special link is expressvpn.com slash martini. And when you use that link, you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. expressvpn.com slash martini. More on that in just a moment. So, Jim, we're all crazy today. Not necessarily talking about you and me, but the topics are, uh, are all crazy today. Let's start with an issue we've uh, waited a bit to address because it's still unfolding, and that is uh, the Joe Biden allegations from former staffer Tara Reid. But our crazy martini today isn't directly related to the allegations. It's the explanation going on here from Alyssa Milano. You remember Alyssa Milano. She was at the very forefront of the uh, Take Out Kavanaugh movement back in 2018. She was even at the confirmation hearings. And so she is now speaking out on this. She's endorsed Joe Biden. And so now she's kind of in a pickle. And she wrote something for Deadline.com. And here's a couple different excerpts. First of all, she says, the allegations against Joe Biden concern me deeply. He's a man I know, respect, and admire, and who I can't picture doing any of the things of which he's accused. But I've thought that before and been wrong. Elsewhere in the Deadline piece, she says, you know, some of these were very clearly right or wrong. We had Harvey Weinstein. We've got Donald Trump's allegations, Brett Kavanaugh, Matt Lauer, Bill Cosby. But you know what? Sometimes we're just, it's just a gray area and we're trying to figure stuff out and it's a lot more complicated. She says the world is gray and as uncomfortable as that makes people, gray is where the real change happens. Black and white is easy. Gray is the place women can come together. Uh, she does encourage Biden to uh, address this. He hasn't been asked about it yet in all these different interviews, but she encourages him to address it head on. She says she still supports him. So, Jim, what do you make of uh, Alyssa Milano twisting and turning here? There's a lot to unpack here. Uh, and, and maybe in a very strange way, I guess I should give Milano a small amount of credit for acknowledging, you know, like the easy thing to do if you're a, a uh, feminist, vehement critic of Brett Kavanaugh uh, is to simply ignore it. There was some reporter who reached out to 10 different uh, women's groups, feminist groups, uh, abortion rights organizations, all the, all the usual suspects who had uh, given the, led the full-throated charge against Kavanaugh and asked, do you have any comment at all on, on Tara Reid and her accusations? 10 of 10 did not respond. So to, to give, give, let's give let's begin by giving Alyssa Milano a small amount of credit for at least not ducking it, not hiding, and to you know address this. Now the problem is is that her argument basically amounts to gobbledygook, um, in the <laughs> sense that, that it basically is well look, the important thing is that I really didn't like Brett Kavanaugh and I like Joe Biden and that's what makes it different. Now um, I paraphrase, but let's, let's first let's begin with her her list of of, of the malevolent in in these cases. We have Harvey Weinstein, convicted criminal. We have Bill Cosby, convicted criminal. I guess Matt Lauer, last I checked, had not been charged with anything, although it was pretty uh, clear from his sudden dismissal from NBC and the fact that, at least as far as I know, Greg, I, has he even been seen? Has he ever, there's been no Charlie Rose floating a re, uh, rehabilitation program. There's been no Mark Halperin, uh, uh, you know, the book deal, you know, Matt Lauer went away and he has stayed away. He had a button. 
to lock the right? door. Right? Yeah, you know. That was a security thing, Greg. You know how many Matt Lauer stalkers try to break into the office? Anyway, um, and then you've got Trump and you've got Kavanaugh. Not, uh, you know, uh, investigated for any crimes. I don't think, I think that's a little bit of base stealing when you just lump them all together as if they're uh, all indistinguishable. And basically, through a lengthy essay of a little, well, a little bit this way, a little bit that way, the world is gray. Okay, interesting. You know, here's something social media can't afford us, nuance. I don't remember any of this during the Kavanaugh hearings. <laughs> the other thing, she keeps talking about how important this is to progressive women. I'd like to think, whatever your politics, whether you're a man or woman, and notice I don't say or other, that you, you basically, that you don't like and you, you oppose sexual harassment. You oppose sexual assault. You never think it's okay or it's good or boys will be boys or an acceptable fact of life or, or anything like that. I, you know, that the, problem, the bigger problem for progressive women is that they have told themselves this theory that the men on their side don't do this. And we've seen in multiple cases, whether you want to say Ted Kennedy, whether you want to say Bill Clinton, uh, that they, you know, are... are who basically are pretty open about the fact that they judge their folks by a different standard. Um, and that, well, wait a second, wait a second, they're feminists. They couldn't have done this. And then the, the facts come out and that, oh, actually, no, these guys are every bit as much creeps as these other people. The other intriguing thing is when you watch the reactions of the Weinsteins of the world, they're usually very quick to emphasize their good progressive bona fides that, you know, uh, Harvey Weinstein was going to take out all of his anger on the NRA and, and all this stuff. These are all, oh, no, we're, we're progressives in good standing. And lo and behold, they're not. Um, I, I think probably the clearest contradiction comes in the passage. The allegations against Joe Biden concern me deeply. He's a man I know, respect, and admire, and I can't picture doing any of the things of which he's accused. But I've thought that before and been wrong. And you're, like, you're kind of leading forward in your chair. Like, Ooh, is she gonna she's like, nope, nope. <laughs> she's still thinking about him. And it's this, you know, I, I'm glad she recognizes this gray area. I hope the next time someone she doesn't like in the political arena gets she remembers the existence of this gray area um we need a better standard uh than some matter of look the the people who i don't like must be guilty and the people i do like must be innocent and that's not what most people have practiced when it comes to these matters and uh it would be nice if based on this she went and thought and, and treated things tre treated these sorts of issues differently adding forward i'm not so I, as much as i loved who's the boss as much as i loved the original charm I do not expect Alyssa Milano will change her views on this very much. Yeah, I was thinking of who's the boss, too. I guess it all comes down now to what Tony Danza and Judith Light think about all this. So uh, being stuck at home these days, you probably don't think too much about internet privacy on your own home network. You just fire up incognito mode on your browser and no one can see what you're doing, right? Wrong. Even in incognito mode, your online activity can still be traced. Even if you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website that you've ever visited. And that's why even when you're at home, you should never go online without using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN makes sure that your internet service provider can't see what sites you visit. Instead, your internet connection is rerouted through ExpressVPN secure servers. Each ExpressVPN server has an IP address that is shared amongst thousands of users. That means everything you do is anonymized and it cannot be traced back to you. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with best-in-class encryption, so your information is always protected. You can use the internet with confidence on your computer, your tablet, your smartphone. ExpressVPN has you covered on every device. Simply tap one button and you are protected. 
ExpressVPN is the fastest and most trusted VPN on the market. It is rated number one by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless more. And it's the best protection you can get against hackers as well. I mean, it's, it's one thing for your service provider to know what your internet history is. It's also uh, the best protection you can get out there to make sure that folks can't get into your bank records and other things out there. So ExpressVPN, protect your online activity today with the VPN that you can trust to secure your privacy. Visit our special link at expressvpn.com martini. And when you do that, you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash martini, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash martini, expressvpn.com slash martini to learn more. All right, Jim, uh, Alyssa Milano was talking about the president. Uh, let's go to our second crazy martini and talk about the president in another light. Uh, according to recent polls, uh, his numbers are dropping a bit, and his staff is now showing him polls uh, losing to Joe Biden. Uh, could be state polls, could be national polls. I saw one national poll where he was even down as far as 10 points. I'm not sure the average would put it there. But uh, the uh, Trump staff, whether that's uh, Jared Kushner, whether it's Brad Parscale, the campaign manager, they're saying, look, these briefings, they might have been doing you some good in the beginning, not so much anymore. So you either need to have fewer of them or stop taking questions, but they're not helping, they're hurting, so something needs to change. And so according to the Washington Post, uh, Trump on a call uh, last week was not in a good mood, joked, at least in the minds of some, that he might sue Parscale based on uh, the polling data. And he basically said that he didn't believe the polling that had been presented to him, even though it came from his own campaign and the RNC. Quote, I'm not losing to Joe Biden, Trump said at one point, both of these people said adding that the president used profanities throughout the call. After the call, Parscale described it to others at the Trump venting session. Jim, uh, the initial reaction from diehard Trump supporters, of course, will be, look at 2016. A lot of the uh, state polls were wrong. The national polls, maybe not so much, but this was supposed to be a slam dunk for Hillary Clinton. In the end, the president won just about every one of the critical battleground states. And so uh, you got to take the polls with a, a grain of salt. Other people would say, uh, that's not necessarily the best way to do this. And so you got to pay attention when the numbers are shifting. So what's your take here? Yeah, well, first of all, there's enough polling. We, ideally, you'd see more. You're not seeing it as much as during the uh, uh, Democratic primaries, you know, apex. But, you know, the polling numbers that we are getting are looking not so great for the president. Uh, some would say downright ominous. I think probably the most significant numbers are that there's some indication he's losing seniors. Seniors are shifting from Trump to Biden. Greg, could there be anything going on right now that would have seniors feeling a newfound nervousness about how the administration was handling things? Is there, is there anything going on, anything that might, anything might hit really close to home to seniors right now? <laughs> you know, like this is, by the way, keep in mind, seniors were a big part of the bread and butter of the Trump support of, of 2016. He doesn't have a lot of room to, to lose these folks, particularly up in those uh, key swing states of Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, but also you could probably put Florida in there. You could probably put North Carolina in there. Arizona, these were big states that, you know, uh, have a significant number of seniors and who are not, uh, you know, not won by an overwhelming margin by Trump. And he just would rather not, you know, have this slipping. And it's probably safe to assume, depending on your measuring stick, Biden's probably going to compete, be at least a little more competitive than Hillary Clinton was amongst some of these demographics. So the question, okay, well, why is this happening? Well, you know, okay, the coronavirus is happening. It's very bad. It's very scary to lots of people, particularly seniors. It is also, it kind of makes the slogan, keep America great, 
a little more challenging <laughs> because we're in a really rough spot as a country. It's not all President Trump's fault. And, and I think most Americans won't blame him single-handedly for this. But look, this is, you know, this is his moment in history. This is the, the grand calling of his first term. And this problem is probably going to extend into his second term if he wins one. So he's, he's got to, you know, this is the time for your A game. Let's take a look at those television briefings, because there was this sudden uh, jump in Trump's numbers as the crisis hit. Usually there's some sort of rally around the flag effect for leaders in a crisis. Um, and I think it's probably safe to say that for a lot of political leaders, this you know, doing a daily White House briefing on what the state of the crisis was, what the U.S. government was doing in response to it, you know, it's a, this is the sort of thing be a slam dunk for most politicians to increase support. All you got to do is step up to the podium, offer some reassuring words, maybe give some new statistics or new numbers about hospital capacity or ventilator production or something like that. And then you turn the stage over to Dr. Anthony Fauci or Dr. Deborah Burks and, and you know, things go fine. You, you basically, uh, most people would feel better at the end of it. They'd feel better about you and they'd feel like they're in better and good hands and life, you know, your numbers would go up. That's not what happened. It may have started that way. But day by day, these briefings turned into Trump's usual campaign rallies, except not having the crowds. Uh, Trump kind of, you know, did little preparation. He just, you know, wasn't all that interested in whatever the news of the day was. He just, you know, wanted to be himself and he liked fighting with the reporters and he liked, you know, getting into name calling. And lo and behold, you know, as the top, as he meandered and he, had, you know, decided to just speak off the cuff, it was inevitable we would get something like, I see the disinfectant that knocks it out in a minute, one minute. Is there a way we can do something like that by injection inside or almost a cleaning? As you see, it gets in the lungs. It does a tremendous number on the lungs. It would be interesting to check that, right? And that, you know, that dominated the news for about 72 hours. If the president is seeing bad poll numbers right now, my guess is that. This does not come across as a president who is serious and ready and at his very best. As we discussed last week, it's perfectly fine to have these brainstorming sessions, but you don't want to do it in front of the television cameras. So if Trump is in trouble... He's got nobody to blame but himself, right? This is you know, the staff apparently were telling him, "Hey, you're losing focus in these briefings. Maybe you want to make them shorter. Maybe you want to make them a little more focused. Be a little more disciplined." Of course, Trump's like, "No, no, no. This is doing great. It's going great. Look how big the ratings are. Everything's fine." Well, lo and behold, his tendency to run his mouth at these briefings has now hurt him. We will see if uh, uh, his campaign staff can overcome this. It's still very early in the process. It's the end of April, but uh, look, he's dug himself into a hole. And I think the other thing, kind of aspect worth worth noting here. I wonder, it's less this particular example than, than the broader phenomenon. Trump said, liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota, liberate Virginia. You know, he gave the impression he wanted states to open up now. These restrictions are being ridiculous. Brian Kemp goes and does that, and then the president turns around and criticizes Brian Kemp. I'm hearing through the grapevine, this irked a great deal of Georgia Republicans. And I suspect that every other Republican governor saw that and said, oh, well, if I take these steps and Trump thinks it's good for, you know, if Trump doesn't feel like defending me, he'll turn around and join the critics on me. So this kind of, really, this kind of flip-flopping and this kind of uh, suggestion that Trump thought these governors were being reckless. I saw folks on Twitter who are pretty darn loyal Trump fans start backing away or just expressing open frustration over this that they almost never would. So I think Trump has really tested the patience of even his most loyal supporters on this issue. And I think he's got reason to be worried about this. And I think the, the, the best way to replace, you know, problems from bad leadership is to improve your leadership, Mr. President. Uh, of course, he can't possibly believe that anything could ever be his fault. So he's going to yell at his campaign staffers because, you know, that makes him feel better. He's probably 
mainly uh, jonesing to get back out on the campaign trail. He probably misses the rallies. He thinks that uh, Biden getting back out there and making more off-the-cuff statements will only help him because Joe Biden's not very good at making off-the-cuff statements for a variety of reasons now. And so assuming the election stays on schedule, like we were talking about yesterday, what does he do? He's got uh, the economy's not the issue that it could have been. He's got a good excuse for it, but it's it's still 30 million jobs now lost. We learned today another 3.8 million lost in the last week. And so uh, he probably feels like he's lost his best issue and he can't get out there. He's almost feeling like a caged animal, probably. Probably. But uh, you know what? You ran for this job. <laughs> you know, like this is your responsibility. You don't want the job. Don't go for it. And you asked for this. for this. It's time to accept it. All right, let's move on to our third and final crazy martini now, Jim. And uh, with each one of these stories uh, over the past few days, I'm thinking, well, I don't know if that by itself uh, warrants a a martini. So today we're going to talk about it in a fairly broad way, but one case in particular. And that's that uh, prisons have turned out to be one of the places where coronavirus has spread most quickly. And it's not surprising. You've got a fairly decent sized population in a lot of these facilities in fairly close quarters. And so uh, the the positive tests are pretty high. For the most part, I don't know of a lot of serious cases, but I'm sure that varies by inmate and, and by location and so forth. But in an effort to mitigate the spread of coronavirus in our correctional institutions, we're seeing people let out of prison early in fairly large numbers. Some of them are famous. A lot of them, of course, aren't. Uh, The illustrious former mayor of New Orleans, Ray Nagin, who was sent up the river for, what was it, 10 years? Uh, He's getting out early. Michael Avenatti, pretty sure he's going back at some point, but he's out for now. Uh, There's been stories that Michael Cohen, the president's former personal attorney, is about to get out. And oh, by the way, he's been writing a tell-all book against President Trump in prison. So he'd be getting out just in time to talk about it on the campaign trail, potentially. Uh, But here's the story that uh, has really bugged me. Because there's there's other nonviolent offenders that have gotten out as well. There was a case in Massachusetts, for example, where a pedophile got released early. But the, the one that takes the cake is Washington State where the Washington Supreme Court, by one vote, a five to four vote, rejected this plan. It was a plan to release two-thirds of inmates, up to 12,000 Washington State prison inmates. And the specifications for those who ought to be considered for release included inmates 50 and older, those with underlying health conditions, anyone with less than 18 months to go on their sentence. And you only had to hit one of those categories, not all three of those. And so the name that stood out about who could potentially be released if one Supreme Court justice who voted against this had voted in favor of it meant that Gary Ridgway would technically qualify for this. And for those who don't know who Gary Ridgway is, he's the Green River killer who killed at least 49 people, probably quite a few more, many of them prostitutes back in the day. I'm not quite sure how old he is now, but there's another serial killer from the Spokane area who would have qualified as well. One of the lead uh, prosecutors in the state is basically pulling his hair out over the fact that this was even considered much less than it got to one vote. So, uh, Jim, yes, the government has the responsibility to uh, preserve the health as best as possible for inmates. But when you get to this point, practicality and absurdity have clearly blurred the lines here. I was about to say, at this point, just blow a hole in the wall and let everybody run out, if that's, <laughs> if that's going to be the upshot of this. If the Green River Killer almost qualifies for release, I mean, the fact that his name is Green River Killer, okay, it's his nickname, but still, you know, who's not making that list? You know, you're looking at, oh, you know, Hannibal Lecter, he says he's lacto-ovo-vegetarian these days, so uh, uh, we're not too worried about him going around eating people or anything like that. 
Um, look, I, I, I understand that, that uh, prison managers have a very tough you know, situation right now. Um, this is not an area you can do social distancing. Kind of the whole point is that you're stuck in a very small area. Uh, you can't move people around. That uh, this is, you know, in many cases, both for safety of, of the inmates, safety of the guards. And I think the, for the people who just say, ah, you know, they're in prison, you know, who cares? Well, look, people who go to prison and who are not sentenced to death should not be left to die. Um, you know, we're, and, you know, it's worth noting, we, we got rid of cruel and unusual punishment uh, going back to our, the founding of this country. The idea of, well, we're going to leave you in that spot. We know you're going to get a disease and this disease might kill you, but hey, you know, you should have thought of that before you broke the law. I'm not so sure that's uh, in, in keeping with our nation's values. Um, but that having been said, you know, it, it would seem that, you know, the easiest cases, the nonviolent offenders, maybe drug cases, maybe even white collared criminals, a little bit easier. At least, you know, they're not going to take an ax and, you know, split somebody's head open or something like that. So this it would seem like they'd be OK. We can, you know, we can work our way through this. Um, you kind of figure this. It's a beautiful state. A lot of wonderful people live there. But man, Washington State feels terribly mismanaged at times. And stories like this do not, you know, someday I might like to live there. But uh, boy. Stories like this, Greg, you know, keep the Green River killer behind bars seems like a really slam dunk decision to me, Greg. This just doesn't sound like the sort of thing you should really be hemming and hawing over and looking like that statue, the thinker. And it comes back to a couple different issues that, that bug me because we just talked just yesterday about de Blasio saying, you guys gather in groups, we're going to arrest you. Well, guess where they take you when they arrest you? <laughs> yes. I mean, that's, how's that solving any problem? And so uh, there was another video uh, yesterday uh, on Twitter that I saw where a mom in Wisconsin was accosted by police for letting her small child play with the neighbor's small child at the other small child's home. And so, uh, you know, because they're in a, do you not know we're at a safe at home policy right now? You're letting criminals out and you're threatening uh, normal people with, uh, with prison time here. It just doesn't make any sense. And I know, Jim, a lot of people have extrapolated this to uh, a more of a leftist position of a lot less people should be in prison. So uh, they just either shouldn't be crimes anymore or we should let them out sooner. And uh, if, if this is what that looks like, I don't like it. I, look, you know, it's difficult to prove this, Greg, but I have the sneaking suspicion that it basically comes down to who do you Kevin Williamson likes to make the point that the reason that you see uh, prosecutors going after gun stores more than you see them af going after black market gun dealers and actual, you know, gun toting criminals is that the gun stores have permanent addresses. It's very easy to find them. It's not like their store can suddenly disappear. Uh, whereas going after illegal gun dealers and going after, uh, uh, you know, actual gang members and people who use the guns and shoot, that's dangerous. They shoot back. They, uh, they, there's, there's a lot more risk in that. And that, you know, those who are all, there's always going to be this inclination to look for the easiest target. Well, if you arrest a soccer mom who's having her kid play with another kid, yeah, okay, maybe the video footage makes your department look bad or something like that. But by and large, you know, it's not like she's going to mace a police officer. It's not like she's going to you know, do something like that. Now, these, these, uh, there, there's, there's kind of this inversion of the dangerous are treated as not dangerous and those who are really no threat to anyone else, but who might be using bad judgment are treated as, uh, uh, you know, society's most, most, you know, ready for John Walsh to come out and narrate some sort of recreation of their crimes. You know, <laughs> you know Sandra Smith allowed lots of children, her children to play with the neighbors during a lockdown in California. We believe she is five, seven. She is unarmed and dangerous if she coughs on you. Yes. And this goes back to the criminal justice reform debate. Uh, a lot of the provisions we, of course, liked and uh, others that said, well, they're nonviolent offenders. Well, a lot of times they were, but they got it pled down. And so it's not officially on their record. So you got to be careful about how you address these things. So 
common sense, people. Common sense. That's our other takeaway this week. Don't trust commies. Use common sense. Goes a long way. <laughs> In a way, they kind of overlap. Yeah, they do. They do. Absolutely. Because <laughs> if you have common sense, you won't trust commies. Jim, on that note, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget our wonderful podcast sponsors today, ExpressVPN, expressvpn.com slash martini. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. Leave us a kind review with five stars, please. We always appreciate that. You can also get us on those home devices. Just say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And most of all, please join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.